Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Tim Noakes. And some of you may be aware of his uh, previous work, but he is a physician and a researcher in South Africa. He essentially uh, graduated medical school from Cape Town, uh, South Africa, before I graduated college in 1974. And then he got his, his um, research degree, I think, a few years later, and he has an extensive uh, history of publishing in, in science and sports medicine uh, uh, physiology. So uh, I think he's published sep- over 750 papers, which is absolutely astonishing. It's really first rate. And he's published two books. One was uh, his breakthrough book and really puts him as a pioneer in this field is preventing so many people from dying from um, overhydration. Uh, and helping correct that issue and clear up the massive confusion that existed before he wrote his book. So uh, we'll talk to him a little bit about that and get a little history, and then we're going to go into some of the low-carb diet approach. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Dr. Noakes. My privilege to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a rare privilege, and I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you for those words. Um, The um, I'm wondering if you could just per, per, uh, provide a background as to your uh, shifting from medicine into research and is, and, is, and you know with how that occurred and what you, what you what you've been doing and what your research focuses on or has been so I think the the first thing that happened was uh, as soon as I went to university I started participating in endurance exercise particularly rowing and that and then I started running and I became more interested in sport than in medicine. And so when I was training as a medical doctor, I was much more interested in how would I apply this information to sport and to medicine. And so when I graduated and then did my internship, I realized I wasn't really cut out to care for care for patients on a daily basis. I was much more interested to understand why people are sick or why are people are healthy and to do the science. So I would rather write the book than, than read the book and learn it. Because I have, a, I can remember stuff, but it has to mean something to me. If it doesn't mean something to me, I, I can't remember it. And that was the problem because medicine is such a lot of pressure to learn a lot of stuff that you probably will never use. So I went into research and was fortunate that I became involved with Professor Lionel Opie, who was just very, very helpful to me, very supportive. And we had built a great relationship. And I worked with him for five years. And at the end of that time, I was asked to start sports science and sports medicine at my university. That was now 1981, which I did. And then I started writing more and doing more research. And we built up a research background. We became a pretty good group of researchers. Unfortunately, we researched the wrong thing. (laughs) We studied carbohydrates and exercise performance. And I now realize that probably wasn't the best thing to be studying. But anyway, I learned how to do science. And as I, as you indicated, I did it pretty effectively. So I went on like this, and I was the golden boy of my university, literally. And in fact, of South African scientists, I was the golden boy. And I could never do anything wrong until one day I read a book called The New Atkins for the New You and realized that I'd got my dietary advice completely wrong and that I was unhealthy on the basis of what I was advising myself to eat and others to eat. And within a period of two hours, I decided to change my diet and try this new thing, this high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, and I had spectacular results and ultimately discovered I was type 2 diabetic, and I put that into remission. And then the next thing of interest was I joined Twitter, and then I did this one very famous <laughs> Twitter tweet, uh, which caused me to be charged by the medical profession in South Africa for unprofessional behavior had to go to court for four years, 28 days over four years, eventually won the case and proved that the low-carbohydrate diet 
has got plenty of evidence behind it. It's not unscientific. It's, in fact, the most scientifically studied diet in the world. So I won that that case, which cleared my name because I, they tried to completely publicly humiliate me. That was my university and my profession. Fortunately, it came at the end of my career, so I had time to to prepare for the trial and and do a really good job and had some brilliant lawyers. So we won that case, and at the same time, I was asked to start helping some other people with research, and we started d- delving deeper in doing studies that I hadn't done before on low carbohydrate diets, and and essentially, we're on the on the cusp of proving that humans don't need carbohydrates. I mean, everyone knows that, <laughs> but when you come from an athletic background, you can't believe that. Well, we've taken it to the extreme, and we've shown that 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 athletes eating a high fat diet, their performance is perfect; it's completely normal. And so, the my opinion is the dietary macronutrient composition, i.e., the amount of carbohydrates and amount of fat you're eating has no effect on your athletic performance with one exception, which we might just talk about. But the reason you burn carbohydrate is very clear to me. You burn carbohydrates to regulate your blood glucose concentration. That's the key element of metabolism is to regulate your blood glucose. And because humans evolved on a high fat, high protein diet, we never had the capacity. We didn't have a need to regulate the blood glucose concentration because we weren't eating stuff that was raising it. Then all of a sudden, as you know, in the last 50 years or so, we started eating more and more carbohydrates. And so you've got this problem of our biology is not designed to cope with all this carbohydrate. And the way we cope with it is we try to burn it. As immediately it comes into the body, you try and burn it and get rid of it out of the bloodstream. And that's why when we study athletes who are eating high-carbohydrate diets, we always say, well, you see, they're burning so much carbohydrate, but they're burning it to get rid of it, not because they need to use it. And we're the first people in 100 years to show that fat-adapted athletes can burn fat at very high rates in high-intensity exercise to the point where you could run a two-hour marathon burning fat alone. That's what the data suggests. We haven't had a person run a two-hour marathon on a high-fat diet, but the amount of energy required by Elliot Kipchoge when he runs a sub-two-hour marathon is about 80 kilojoules per minute. Fat can provide 76 kilojoules per minute at least. So he could run all that race just burning fat, which, of course, conflicts with everything we're taught. So that's that's where we're at at the moment, and I'm working vigorously on on finalizing the documents which which prove that humans don't need carbohydrates for exercise. They can do very well with with a minimum amount of carbohydrate. Well, well, thank you for sharing that background. I'd like to go into more detail about a topic that you didn't mention, which I believe is probably one of your greatest contributions to the to science. And that is helping us understand the dangers of overhydration that has killed so many people in long distance endurance event, uh, events where they attempted to compensate for being dehydrated and wound up killing themselves secondary to hyponatremia and, and uh, heart arrhythmias. So maybe you can share with us your process of coming to that conclusion and popularizing the correct approach to hydration during uh, long-distance endurance events. So I mentioned 1981 was when I first started, and I'm now a lecturer in sports science at the University of Cape Town, and I'm giving my conventional lectures. And in fact, I wrote an article in March 1981 saying, runners must drink as much as they possibly can tolerate when they're running. And what doesn't go in your mouth must go over your body to keep you cool because heat strokes, the worst possible thing that can affect you during marathon running. And I'd been pushing that story for about 10 years. And the reason was because when I first started running marathons in 1973, we weren't allowed to drink. (laughs) We were almost forbidden to drink. And the rules slowly changed. And then it was realized that it wasn't a good idea not to drink. Anyway, so March, I write this article, and then on about June the 7th of that year, I get a letter, email, sorry, it was a letter in those days, through the post, from a lady who competed in South Africa's most iconic race. It's a 56-mile race up and down hills between two cities in KwaZulu-Natal. It's been running since 
1921. And it is probably the greatest race in the world for a number of reasons. It's just an astonishing race. So she's running in this 56-mile race. Now, to get into the race, she has to qualify. So she has to have done a decent marathon time to get into the race. So she's pretty fit. So she runs the race, and at 70 kilometers into the race, her, her she doesn't recognize her husband who's supporting her. And he figures there's something wrong with her. So he, he says, I'm taking you out of the race. And he puts her in the car, and he drives her to the finish of the race, and she's examined there by the doctors who say, oh, you see, you're dehydrated. You need more fluids. So she's given two liters of fluid intravenously, and she goes unconscious. <laughs> and, the, and the guys, the father, husband says, your treatment's not making her better. It's making her worse. I'm going to take her somewhere else. So he puts her in the car and takes her back to the, where the start of the race was, where he admits her to hospital. But in the in the process, she has a, an epileptic seizure at the same mm. time. So he arrives in Durban with his wife, who six or seven hours later was perfectly healthy when she started the race. She's now unconscious. So she's admitted, unfortunately, she was seen by a well-trained physician who knows that when you have an unconscious patient, you, a lot of things you have to do. And one of them is to measure the blood sodium concentration. And he found it with 112 units. Oof. And 140, as you know, is the normal. And so she he didn't know how to treat her, he, it, but he didn't treat her wrongly. That's the He didn't treat her rightly, but he didn't treat her wrongly. Had he given her fluids, she, he would have killed her. That, there's no question. So he restricted fluids and just waited. And over four days, she eventually became conscious. It took four days to regain consciousness. So she wrote to me and she said what had happened, she'd been told she'd lost a lot of salt in diarrhea or something, and that was the problem. And I said to her, well, I have no idea because this is the first case ever reported. So, and then I obviously I was interested to find out. So I started phoning around and studying. It turned out there was another athlete who'd suffered a similar problem in the same race, and I got evidence about him. And then I found another two cases. So by 1985, I had four cases, and it was clear to me that all had drunk too much fluid during the race. I, I couldn't prove it because it was only on their can history. I, can I interrupt you for a moment? Sure. The, the, when they gave the woman uh, fluid at, at the finish line, was that, I think you said two liters, was that yeah. uh, water or was it normal, uh, normal, normal saline? saline. They yeah, gave her normal is, saline that still caused it. Wow. Yeah. No, normal saline will kill you at that. The, wow. The, the treatment is you have to give three to five percent sodium. And then what happens is the kidneys can no longer concentrate that. And so they just release the sodium that you've mm. injected injected in and it takes out water and it's miraculous we've we've had some dramatic recovery recoveries people going from unconscious to fully conscious in a couple of hours and and other people in minutes literally in minutes being completely confused and you give them this high sodium and they within minutes they start to get better and the reason is because as the sodium drops the fluid expands the brain and so the brain volume starts to increase and ultimately the pressure rises and so it stops the blood flowing in or flowing out and as a consequence, you get uh, the the back of the brain goes right through to below the spinal cord, and it crushes it, and then you stop breathing. So that's the the cause of death is you stop breathing, and so that's the problem, and that's that's how it happens. So, so during that time, and in fact, it was about a few years later, I was found at midnight, in I think it was 1986. So now we've written a paper published 1985 saying, we think it's fluid overload. Then in 1986, um, at midnight, I'm phoned from the race itself. I wasn't participating that year. And the doctor says, I've got seven patients with low sodiums, and they're all in real distress. And she, sa she said, what do I do? I said, all I know is you just give them a, a diuretic and don't give them fluids. And they fortunately survived. So I decided next year we'd go up to the, the Comrades Marathon, and I sent a, a PhD student to study pa pa patients who were hospitalized with this condition. And he did a brilliant study. He followed them in recovery. He measured how much sodium they lost in the urine, how much water they lost, and how much sodium was given to them, and, and concluded without any doubt that all had been overhydrated. And by some, 
it was up to six liters and I'm quite not quite sure what a pint is but this was this is a lot of fluid. that's six kilograms of water in excess they had drunk during the race so then we knew we published that paper in the journal of applied physiology and it showed that this was a condition of fluid overload now at that very time the problem was that the sports drink industry in the united states was taking off and they were telling runners in america to drink as much as tolerable and we knew that's going to kill patients and I predicted that the first person who would die from this condition would be a female runner in an American race. And that exactly happened. 1993, a runner in California died. And again, she finished the race. She was semi-conscious. And then she was treated. And the treatment was wrong. And that, unfortunately, led to her demise. So ultimately, we were able to prove that that the condition doesn't occur in everyone who overdrinks. Most people who overdrink simply pass more urine. So they're running along and they're drinking too much and they pass all this urine. They say, well, actually, I probably don't need to drink all this amount. What happens in this condition is that they've got inappropriate hormone secretion, antidiuretic hormone, and they retain fluid, even though they're sorry, overhydrated, they retain fluid. And so they're running along and they're not passing urine. So I think, my gosh, I'm dehydrated, so I must drink more. And that fluid is retained because this hormone is so powerful at retaining water. And so ultimately the brain swells, they lose consciousness. And provided you leave them alone or give them a solid high sodium infusion, they're fine. But if you give them a low sodium infusion, you're going to kill them. That that's that's what that's what will happen. And that, as you've indicated, had did happen. So I was demonized for saying all this. Eventually, I wrote that book, Waterlogged, which I have. Yeah, here it is. So eventually, I wrote this book, Waterlogged, <laughs> and and that describes the whole history of what happened and and the whole story of how you should just drink to thirst, and the dehydration has never been shown to be a cause of ill health or death in marathon runners. How could it be? Where do you find more fluid available to humans than during a marathon race? Nowhere. So how can these people not be drinking and be dehydrated? It doesn't make sense. Congratulations on that discovery. Now, you were the first researcher that identified this syndrome, right? And you're responsible for Yeah. So, I mean, in my view, that discovery should warrant a Nobel Prize in physiology and medicine. I mean, it is because it's truly profound. It's going to save so many lives and it's foundational, something that was you was not known prior to your uh, discovery. So congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm very touched by that. Yeah, that's that's so kind of you when someone else says that. It's, it really means a lot to me. So thanks, yeah. Dr. Well, McCullough. It's, it's, I really it, it, is, it is clearly an outstanding achievement. Yeah. I'm personally curious, what is responsible for that? the initiation of the increase in ADH or antidiuretic hormone? What would cause them to do that? You know, I think it's uh, it's genetic in the sense that you either oh. have it or you don't. And I, I think about 10 to 20% of people have that condition that when they overdrink, the body doesn't recognize it as being overhydrated. It still thinks you're dehydrated. So that's that's the closest I can come. It is true that if you have pain and discomfort and so on, that can cause ADH to rise, uh, even though you're becoming overhydrated. But I I can't see that. I mean, we have we have so many people running marathons and getting sore, but they're not all getting. They're all not showing ADH, uh, SIADH. So I don't think it's that. I just I think it's there's a problem, a biological problem in these people. And we see it every so often. In fact, last week, I think I was reading about a woman who, who killed herself by doing one of these tests, con- contests, how much can you drink in 24 hours? Mm. And and so there wasn't any pain involved. She just has this condition. And if you're going to drink to excess, that's going to be the outcome. Yeah. So maybe they have a genetic SNP, a polymorphism yeah. that uh, facilitates that. Interesting. So I also want to congratulate you on uh, really standing up to the censorship that was so that was pre-COVID. <laughs> I mean, you did that, what, almost eight years or six years before the, the COVID censorship. So um, 
I wanted, you know, we we have many similarities in our background. We both went, to, I, except I'm not a researcher. I just went into uh, clin- clinical uh, th- uh, practice, uh, but you went on to become a world-class researcher, but we both in- embraced endurance running long before it became popular. I started in 68 uh, and I, I haven't run as many races as you, at least long distance races, but I, I also embraced low carb early on, probably before you did. Yes. And uh, I wrote a, a book called Fat for Fuel. So I, I really get the concept, endorsed it, recommended it. And I, I'm sure millions of people, I catalyzed their following it. Um, but I, you know, I never got diabetes, I think, because I was embracing the low carb. So I think there, there's great value in low carb, not a micro down in my mind that so many people uh, benefit from it. And, and I think it's largely related to the fact that the, a massive percentage of the population, the vast majority. I mean, there was a paper published last July, which is the most recent data from the uh, 2018 H- N. Haynes data that showed that 93%, 14 out of 15 people were metabolically inflexible, insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, this was in US data. Uh, and that data was ni- 2018. That is five-year-old data now. So I think it's 95 to 97%. And my guess is that virtually every single one of those individuals would significantly benefit from a low carb approach to facilitate their ability to recover metabolic flexibility. But here's where I I diverge. And this is a recent divergence. And maybe you might have heard of some of the, uh, the work of Ray Pete. He was a biologist. He passed away last year, but he was took us a converse approach. Uh, with respect to advocating a relatively high glucose diet, specific types or carbs, uh, but specific type of carbs, not all carbs, very specific types that uh, can facilitate uh, optimal health. Mm. And and it's called bioenergetic medicine. And there's many people who follow him. And and interestingly, has done, you know, a lot of people who follow his work have done really, really well. And I was, was always wondering when I was low carb too, why was it that these low fat people did so well? <laughs> Not all, <laughs> but they did. I mean, because there was two ways you could treat diabetes that, that were highly successful, low fat, high carb, or high fat, low carb. They both seem to work. I think there's many commonalities between them. A lot of them being that there were based on more of a whole food diet. They were so a lot of the processed foods were being avoided. And I think that is probably the most pernicious contributor to ill health is is processed foods. And the single most important variable in those processed foods, from my understanding, is the omega-6 excess that Mm -hmm. we have, and specifically linoleic acid. So you you stated earlier that you're on the verge of proving that we don't need I just, and I want to make sure that I'm saying this correctly because mm. the words are important, that we don't need carbohydrates to compete effectively in endurance events. Is, is that it or did I mischaracterize? No, I think that's, that, that's the safest comment to make, yes. Uh, okay, okay. So I think, pro- I think that's probably true. But my the reason I went into medicine was I have a passion to be healthy, to, to mm. live as long and healthy and as I can and teach other people how to do that. So in that effort, I concluded up until recently that fat was the ideal fuel to burn as a substrate in your mitochondria. And I've encountered information primarily through Ray Pete's work that suggests that's not true. And that although you could, technically you don't need carbohydrates, your body can make it, but it makes it at a price. And this is what I want to discuss with you because you're really the almost ideal person. You're such a well-respected and, and deeply knowledgeable researcher. You're intimately uh, familiar with it, with the science. And I just never have been able to have a dialogue with someone with your stature in this important area of molecular biology. So I'm just so delighted to engage in this conversation. But the supposition is that what is the ideal fuel to burn in the mitochondria to optimize longevity? And to do that, you have to minimize you have to, well, but, but, but rather than taking it from a negative perspective, positive perspective, you have to optimize mitochondrial efficiency. And that is produce fuel with the least amount 
of exhaust in the form of reactive oxygen species. So my understanding is that you can do that if you have forward electron flow in the mitochondria through the complexes. And you can get to like 99.9% efficiency. But when you get, I mean, encounter something, I suspect you're familiar with this reductive stress, which facilitates reverse electron flow in the mitochondria, then that act that the, the amount of reactive oxygen species that are generated goes up 30 to 40 times. That's a big, I mean, it's still only three to four percent, but that's a big jump. And one of the things that can contribute to this reductive stress is beta oxidation of fat to con- that contributes to the acetyl-CoA that's fed into the, ch- the chain. And when that when beta oxidation occurs, my understanding is that the electrons don't go, jump to uh, complex one, they, they're jumping to complex two, and that's contributing to some of the, that reductive stress. And it's this, that, that reductive stress from this, the fatty acids, uh, and of course, linoleic acid being the worst, but any, even saturated fatty acids, are going to fuel you and, and fuel you in a way that is better than 95% of the population. But the question in my mind, is it optimal? Is that what we're really designed for? And the, the danger, let me just continue and I'll let you yeah, sure. as long as you'd like, because there's another point I want to bring in. The danger and the concern that really shocked me almost, I almost fell down when I heard this because mm-hmm. I I mean, we everyone who goes to medical school knows about cortisol. And we're taught that it's a glucocorticoid. Well, think about that for a minute. But its first word is gluco. So it's responsible for glucose homeostasis. And if you look it up in the books, that's what they tell you. It normalizes glucose. But it does it in a very <laughs> peculiar way. It's the rescue hormone that when our glucose levels get too low, you're going to secrete cortisol. And the, the, the danger of that is that I mean, it definitely works. Thank God we have it. We'd be dead in a heartbeat without it because you you have to have this ability to, to generate glucose instantly in a flight or fright re- reaction. But what if you do it chronically, the glucose or the, the, the cortisol um, essentially shreds <laughs> your important tissues like your bones, your brain, your muscles, it sacrifices and liberate well, it liberates uh, fatty acids too, but it liberates amino acids from these tissues, and essentially sacrifices and shuttles them to the liver for gluconeogenesis to generate glucose. Thank God. So the danger of of going low carb long term, as I said, I totally agree that short term it's a magnificent intervention, but long term is that you tend to have this chronic excess cortisol, which leads to a lot of complications, specifically, you know, some of the sarcopenia, especially get old, elderly. So those are the concerns I have uh, ad- adopted, I guess, in the last year or two, as, as I've been studying Ray Pete's work uh, and, and examining the science, and it seems to support it. And I'm just so interested in getting your take on this anomaly, per- perceived anomaly. So let me tell you the story. So when I went into research, I mentioned Lionel Opie's name. And and I studied the pumping heart, the isolated heart of the rat. We would take the rats, we'd, mo- we'd mount the heart on a circulating system. So it was working as if it was in the body of the rat. And I, my focus for my PhD was to what was the fuels that made the heart perform the best. Mm-hmm. And... I came to the conclusion that glucose and insulin were actually the optimum. But the very first experiment I did was to add ketones to glucose and the, the heart functioned a lot more, a lot better. But I didn't, I left it at that and didn't deal it with it any further, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Because Richard Richard Veach. Oh, sure. He passed uh, away like two or three years ago. Yeah. That's right. He, he didn't. Did. He he started, did exactly the same experiments ten years later or so, and came came to the conclusion that ketone metabolism was crucial for for whole body metabolism. And if I read the read the introduction to this article, therapeutic potentials of mild ketosis flow directly from a thorough understanding of their metabolic effects, particularly upon mitochondrial redox states and energetics and upon substrate availability. Now, it turns out that 
that Lionel Opie had worked in the same laboratory before Veach arrived. Mm-hmm. And when Veach arrived, the, the boss of the laboratory, Hans Krebs, mm-hmm. who won the Nobel Prize and who was inspired by Warburg to leave Germany and go to Oxford, Cambridge and Oxford to study and then produce the Krebs cycle. When Veach came along, he said, I want to understand the redox state of tissues. And that was the challenge that he put to Richard Veach. And there's a lovely book, Ketones, The Fourth Fuel, Mm -hmm. and written by Travis Christofferson, in which he talks about Warburg to Hans Krebs to Veach. And they were the three people who really promoted ketone metabolism and its understanding. So I'm not the the authority, but it seems to me that ketones do have a special role in mitochondrial metabolism and to do exactly what you're suggesting the carbohydrates do. So that's an interesting story. And I think that I, one needs to go and study more why Veach became so famous and what Krebs was driving for. What what was Krebs asking? Why was he asking that question? I want to know the, the total cell redox state and not just the ATP-ADP ratio, NAD-NADH ratio. He wanted to know the whole story, and that was the challenge he gave to Veach. And Veach came up to the conclusion that ketones had a special role in minimizing mitochondrial electron overflow, as you suggested, and oxidative stress. But I haven't really studied closely enough all his research, and that's why I've got this paper right here okay. waiting to be read. <laughs> all right, well, fair enough. But the, uh, where you had mentioned your studies in cardiac cells. And, mm. and and those cells are a bit different than most cells in the body in that in a resting state, they require fat to, yeah. to fuel their, their, their function. And if they don't get it, it's a problem. So I'm not saying you need a 0% fat diet. That would kill you for sure. But, uh, you know, and the, the heart cells are, are an anomaly because that's not true for the other, most of the other cells in the body. So I'm not sure if it's fair to use that as a state, but I think you're right that with respect to optimizing redox potential is really the key. And I'm wondering if you'd explore s- some of the uh, really important cofactors in mitochondrial energy production. And one of the biggest ones is NAD plus. And that of course is uh, become quite popular nowadays with NAD precursors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the big ones would be nicotinamide riboside and then nicotinamide mononucleotide, which are the expensive ones, typically a hundred or many hundreds of dollars a month, if you're going to use them in bigger doses. Uh, but NMN is not available. It was just taken off the market because there was a company making NMN and seeking to get it as a drug so they can miss the FDA to make it illegal. So there's just NR and what I think is the optimal or really the ideal form, which is niacinamide uh, at a small dose, about 50 milligrams three times a day. But anyway, the reason that's important is that if you have, there seems to be a correlation, direct correlation between the NAD level or the concentrations and the and the the level of ATP being produced. So if you can optimize or maximize your NAD production, you're likely going to have a corresponding increase in ATP. And I'm wondering if you if you looked or explored that issue at all. No, I haven't. Um... The, because I'm not a, not a cellular biologist as such, I'm sort of a macro whole body biologist, and so I followed what what came out and the, the role of the high fat diet and the fact that humans evolved with that diet. And what I must admit that if you'd asked me ten years ago, I would have said that supplements play no role in health. And and I mean, let's face it, that is still the, the general opinion of medical doctors, or that's what we taught at medical school. And I've, I've significantly changed that, and I have an array of substances which I take. But I'm looking for the evidence that, that they do make a difference. And I, and I understand that that evidence is really difficult to get. 
So I, I, I try to go from the evidence rather than the model. And I understand why people start with a model and they say this predicts that's what you should be doing. But I tend to go the other way. I go from the evidence and then and then try to explain that evidence with a model. So that's that's what yeah, I'm that's looking the way for. You, that's the way you figure out the overhydration for sure. Yeah. You work backwards. Yeah. Um, and it's the same that the uh, the model, a lot of people, their model is carbohydrates are essential for exercise. So then they argue everything like that. Oh, you see, we give these people carbohydrates and they perform better. So that proves the carbohydrates are the real deal. Whereas if you, or it's, or they look at the evidence and they say, oh, but we gave more carbohydrates and performance almost changed, but it didn't quite change. But we know that the model is such that they must change. So therefore our research was 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 incomplete when when what you do is if you do an experiment and it doesn't prove or support what you believe your belief's wrong mm-hmm. and i'm i'm just at this very moment involved in a debate which will be published in in medicine and science and sports and exercise in in one of the people who's been promoting the high carbohydrate diet for the last 30 years and that person's the model is fixed in the head and there's mm. never a desire to study anything else. Can you disclose what, who that person is? No, I don't think it's fair at this time. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> you, they, that will become apparent when the journal is published in a few months' time. But so the, the point is that the model is so fixed. And, and science, you must test your model. And that's what I've done all my career, mm-hmm. is to look for the outliers, like this lady who was supposedly dehydrated when she was overhydrated. Mm-hmm. And uh, very soon realizing that overhydration was the real problem, which then, but unfortunately, I never, some people can't, could never get around that. And some very important organizers of marathons could never get around the idea that dehydration mm-hmm. wasn't, the, wasn't the real problem. And it's the same here. If you believe carbs are essential, then you'll ignore all the evidence and, and in these debates you have with people, they'll say, oh, but it didn't work, but it should have worked. But it would have worked if we'd done this. No, 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 that's not how science works. You design the experiment and you see what the outcome is. And if it disagrees with your hypothesis, your hypothesis is wrong. And Richard Feynman said that so many years ago. You know, If the experiment yeah. doesn't agree with you, you're wrong, not the experiment. And so at the moment, we're just gearing up for the ultimate test to see how much carbohydrate you actually need during exercise. And and our hypothesis is that it's a trivial amount. It's all you need is just to maintain your blood glucose concentration. That's all you need to do. And your blood glucose concentration is under stress during exercise because even if you're fully fat adapted, you can't quite generate enough glucose to maintain your blood glucose for more than about three or four hours so that ultimately if you don't have carbs and you're if you're a low carb athlete you don't eat any carbs after about four hours you run into trouble and so we're, we're testing that hypothesis it's not the maximum amount of carbohydrate you need we want to determine the minimum much as we determine the minimum amount of fluids you need during exercise okay so you're in the process of doing that research now right yes and I hopefully will- by December, we will happily the result. The results will be in. Yeah, we, well, we've we've, we've designed the, what I think is the perfect study, and uh, it's going to prove us wrong or it's going to prove us right. Which is the best. I would love to see that study, but but yeah. in my experience, one of the primary confounding variables that's very rarely addressed, and it may or may not be addressed in your 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 case, but it certainly isn't addressed in almost all the discussions with the low carb versus high carb. Uh, and, and the quantities of the carb, in my mind, varies in ideal. And, and my focus, again, is really on human health and longevity, not necessarily yeah. athletic performance. So it's a bit of a different focus. Sure. Uh, but you just can't willy-nilly throw high carbs on someone. It has to do are – are you familiar with the Randall cycle? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah if, you would be, of course. You're a good researcher. Well, Randall came from – Was from he South Australia. Africa? No, 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 he's he's British. And the Randall, he was, I mean, that's what I was taught because I was studying the, the heart and it's the Randall effect. 
is why when you give fatty acids, you inhibit glucose uptake and so on, mm -hmm. which turns out isn't true in the heart anymore. But but it was yeah. in his experiments, it looked like it was true. Yeah, the, the, again, the heart or the cardiac cells are anomaly because they have to run continuously. Uh, but generally, I think most most scientists and certainly people in the, in the keto community don't appreciate the Randall effect. And it's really one of the limiting factors where you just can't throw high carbs. If you're taking a lot of fat, the Randall cycle is going to inhibit the oxidation of glucose in the mitochondria. And that's not a so you have to consolidate that Randall effect and optimize your uh, fat intake. And if you're metabolically impaired, as many people are, th that fat intake might need to go as low as 10, 15%, not long-term, but short-term before the you can force the glucose to be oxidized in the mitochondria rather than be shuttled over to glycolysis. But I want to propose this confounding variable I referenced earlier. Yeah. As a, as I believe, what would probably, probably more than likely the reason why you develop diabetes wasn't because you were high carb. The carb is an innocent victim in this process, I believe. I think mm -hmm. the real culprit is the enormous amount of omega-6 that you had accumulated because you really, mm -hmm. it, it, it sounds like you weren't really optimized on an optimal healthy diet. I, I mean, it's important to eat and you didn't eat really junk food and stuff, but, but almost unless you're obsessive about focusing or almost orthorexic, I'm focusing on this linoleic acid, it's really hard not to have unhealthy tissue levels. Uh, what's a healthy tissue level? Probably under 2%, 2%. And the, the humanity hasn't seen that for 150 years. When they first started industrial processing, it was shortly after the Civil War in the United States, about the 1860s, 1870s. Uh, and it, then and the fat content of the diet was almost exclusively due to animals was 99%. Now mm. it's 80% these vegetable or seed oils, 80%. And we have levels in our tissues that are 12 times higher than optimal, 12 times higher, literally. And, and, and that's such a significant issue because it's so susceptible to oxidative damage and these, and it yeah. liberates these oxidative metabolites like acrolein, uh, melondialdehyde, 4-hydroxynonol, and these damage the tissues, specifically the mitochondria. They really, when they get embedded in cardiolipin, oh my gosh, it's off to the races in mitochondrial, mitochondrial destruction. So, and you can, and it then it becomes really a challenge to, to oxidize glucose in the mitochondria if you've got this oxidative damage and you've got high levels of like uh, of fatty acids and tissues and high levels of lipolysis that are circulating the fatty acids. So I think that's the variable. I think that's the issue that really needs to be addressed foundationally to decipher what's really going on. And unless you look at the LA levels, and I, I, I'm really curious as to in your study, I'm assuming it's an animal model and you're feeding them conventional rat chow or mouse chow, mice, mouse chow, mice chow. <laughs> Sorry, so now the studies we're doing are on humans. Sorry, but let me just add a point there. The last study we did was of high fat diet, high carb diet in 10 athletes, randomized controlled crossover. And what was really interesting, we also measured continuous glucose monitoring on these athletes. Now, these athletes are lean. They're not the world's best athletes, but they're good runners. They run two, two, uh, five Ks in about 20 minutes. So they can run for what it's a K. So they're not. They're not slow, but they're not Elliot Kipchoge, which is, mm -hmm. people say, oh, if you're not studying Elliot Kipchoge, you're not studying physiology. I mean, it's pathetic. And anyway, of the 10, on the high-carb diet, three became pre-diabetic. They showed clear evidence for pre-diabetes. And these are healthy people. As soon as they went on the high-fat diet, they reversed that, and they'd be completely normalized. And the interesting point was, to come back to your message, that they were the big fat burners. The, the ones who had the highest rates of fat oxidation were the ones who benefited the most from the high-fat diet. So anyway, but to come back to your point, that they changed their diet. The only thing that we claimed they changed was eating a low-carb diet, but of course it wasn't. They ate a much better, healthier diet, and they probably cut out a lot of the vegetable oils that you spoke about. So I, I quite agree with you. We can't exclude the fact that the benefit mm -hmm. of the low-carb diet in them was not because they just began to eat a better, healthier diet. 
And when you look at the diets, I've looked at triathletes, world-class triathletes who've asked me for dietary advice, and they're eating a lot of calories, but so much of it is junk. It's too terrible. Mm. And that's when you go on this athletic, high-carb diet, it ultra-processed food diet, it's a profoundly unhealthy diet. And I suspect there's a lot of vegetable oils, omega-6s in that diet as well. Yeah, I, I think that's the culprit. And I think unless you're controlling for that variable, this, the results of the study is going to be difficult to interpret. <laughs> that's being kind, I think. <laughs> because it, it, in my view, that... And I've got, I've just wrote a paper, you know, you know, I've got two papers written this century. You've probably got 400, uh, but it's a narrative review of linoleic acid and historically yeah. what's been happening and why, and provides the scientific understanding as to why it's such a big issue. Um, but I, I think that's the issue. And there's no question, high carb diet and, and the con- conventional application of that is probably terrible. So, mm. but if you, if you control for the fat, you know, minimize linoleic acid and get the total fat content under 30%, you, you, you really can't go high carbon unless you're relatively lower fat because it's exactly predictable. You can lead to diabetes, especially if you have high tissue levels of linoleic acid. Yeah. It's just going to, that glucose cannot be metabolized in the mitochondria. It's going to go, it's going to go right to glycolysis. It's going to generate lactate. Uh, mess up the redox potential, and it just puts everything in the wrong direction. Uh, you know, in, in the bioenergetic community's view, diabetes and obesity, for that matter, which is, you know, because you, you actually, this is a good point. You can be obese, massively obese, and not be diabetic. They're 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 not one and one. Hmm. They're frequently accompanied, yeah, sure. but of course, you yeah. know, they they're not. So there there are whole populations that are obese, but essentially have. A very low levels of fat burning in their mitochondria, and they're not diabetic. Mm. So, diabetes. The biogenetic community's view is that it's really a fat burning issue, and that's excess fat in the tissues and excess lipolysis that's causing the mitochondrial disruption to uh, not allow the glucose to be optimally me- metabolized in the mitochondria like it was designed to, and generate mm. in a forward electron flow the minimum amount of reactive oxygen species. So you, it's 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 not a simple throw up any carbohydrate on board and you're gonna be a problem, especially if you're throwing grains on which are full of linoleic acid and a lot of resistant starches. So ideally, you know, you have the right amount, not excess, the right amount of carbohydrates in the form of ripe fruits, which is probably the best, one of the best foods in the world, I think, ripe fruits. And uh, because it's loaded with typical high levels of potassium, which will balance any any sodium. Oh, that's that's another question. I'll let you respond to that. But getting back to the overhydration, I'm wondering from your extensive, your world-class expert, what is your view on the use of baking soda as a supplement to prevent uh, dehydration, uh, typically in the levels, because I know it's being used quite a bit as a, a ergogenic aid for uh, exercise uh, sports. Uh, and actually, I think it's illegal, if I'm not mistaken, to to use this as an aid in in race horse racing. They, yeah. they, they've mandated it illegal because it's such, it provides such a competitive advantage. But on the dose of probably a teaspoon, five grams three times or four times a day uh, to, to not only neutralize the acidity, but also raise sodium levels and CO2. Yeah. Um, so we did some studies years ago and I'd have to go and look at them again. And I wasn't very convinced that that there was benefit in terms of there were also side effects, diarrhea, et cetera. So I'm, I'm very reluctant to fool around with the system and rather train it properly and get it properly adapted. I mean, I'm again looking at articles on teaching the gut to take more glucose in. I mean, to me, that's ridiculous. If you, the cause of abdominal distress during exercise is usually too too much carbohydrates. So now what mm-hmm. these people pushing carbs will say, oh yes, but if you can train the gut, then it's not a problem. But it seems to me that that's wrong. There's a reason why if you're getting sick when you're taking the product, then it's probably not such a good idea. And you're, you're so referring I'm, to, I'm take, taking, to the, taking the, the, the glucose during competition? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm talking about 120 grams an hour. 120 oh, grams an hour. Yeah. oh, man. That's massive. Yeah. 
And I tell people, but that's two glucose tolerance tests every hour. You know, we use a glucose tolerance test to prove that you're unhealthy or to not to prove that you're healthy. It's it's astonishing. And you see, this is the model. They've used this model. And somewhere they managed to get of people taking 90 grams where we performed slightly better, marginally better. So if you've got 90 grams, what about 120 grams? Oh, the 120 grams is no better than the 90. So we'll we'll stick between 90 and 120 grams an hour. And that's just ludicrous because if you look at the metabolism, what that does is completely shuts off fat metabolism. So these people are running with not burning any fat. They're just burning the carbs to try to get rid of it, as I've, as I've indicated. Mm-hmm. There's one point I would like to make because one of the best studies we did in 1999 and one that I only realized years later how important that was, was that muscle glycogen determines fat metabolism. It's not the Randall cycle. It's it's the content of glycogen in the muscles determines how much fat you burn. And we showed that because we made people, we we had them glycogen deplete. And then we infused glucose. And it, then glucose infusion made no difference. They just, they, re, they refused to burn the extra glucose because they were burning so much fat when the glycogen was low. And in fact, I found an old paper somewhere again that that the best way to, to normalize your, your glucose tolerance is to get your muscle glycogen to zero or as low as possible. And that fits my model. My model is that when you take carbohydrate, the first thing you do is you try to burn it so you inhibit fat, you inhibit fat oxidation. And then you dump it. You dump it in muscle. That's why muscle is there, and that's why liver is there. And I'm now I'm giving you my story, so you can mm-hmm. say it's all wrong, and but for people to think no, about no. it. No, no, that's where you're expert at for sure. <laughs> now, now I, it seems, I thought, I, it seems I to that... me that you dump it in the muscles, and then you've got to exercise to get rid of it. And that you see, you, you cannot stop muscle glycogen burning. It, you cannot. You can do what you like. It doesn't stop. So you can we you can infuse glucose at high rates. The muscles will mm-hmm. still burn the glycogen. If there's glycogen in the muscle, it will be burned. And you have to ask why when there's so much fat to be oxidized. So those are that's the model that I see. I see that the the human as being loving to burn fat, and and we've destroyed that by feeding them linoleic acid and carbs for too long. That, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. that's how I see it. Well, good. Uh, you know, my understanding of muscle glycogen is that it's only used in the muscle, that the glycogen can't be excreted in, or secreted into that's the glucose. Bloodstream. That's correct. Yeah, only the, the glycogen exactly. in the liver can do that. Yeah, that's correct. So that, that would be an issue. The two issues I would think of is that that speaks strongly for resistance training and building up significant muscle mass, which yeah. has been my... Yeah transition out of endurance running into resistance training in the last 10 years. And then the other is liver health, um, which I think like two thirds of the population primarily related to high tissue levels of linoleic acid yeah. have dysfunctional livers and NAFLD to NASD. Uh, Absolutely. As, as, yeah. So, and if, and if you have liver disease, you're not going to be able to store large amounts of glycogen in your liver. It might, yeah. what, what is your best guess if, if someone is NAFLD, how, how much of a reduced capacity do they have to store glycogen? That's a great question. I, you know, and I'd love to see someone measure it. I don't know. But if you're filling you the guess? cells up with fat, <laughs> maybe half, maybe half. Yeah, I would think so. That would be my guess. So half. So that's a big difference. So you, and the reason that's so important is because, especially if you're on low carb, I think that's a serious issue that has to be factored in here. If, you, if your liver isn't that healthy, you've got half the reduc- reduced capacity of storing liver, of storing glycogen in the liver, which is really the only source you have because you can't secrete it as you confirm through the muscles, uh, or either eating it or it's being secreted from the liver. Uh, so you don't have that much of a storage capacity. So you're going to shift to the cortisol. And I'm wondering, have you looked at the cortisol issue? Because to me, that's a big, big issue. And there are many experts who view cortisol itself as the primary aging hormone. The thing that's going to mm-hmm. put the, the metal to the pedal of rapidly accelerating the aging process if you have excess cortisol. Excellent. And I was going to ask, and I was, oh, I was going to ask you a question because I've also shifted to weights and, and resistance training. And I've, it's astonishing. I think 
when I look back, the the benefits I get as a 74-year-old from resistance training are what the benefits are equal to the benefits I used to get at running as a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old. But today at 70, I can't get those benefits from running anymore. You have to change. And it, I just don't know what it what's changed. And I've met a lot of endurance athletes who've told me exactly what you said. That once they cross the 60, they they reduced the running or the cycling and moved into resistance training and with huge benefits. Yeah, I see actually, because I started early. I was young. I started in 1968, uh, my, my endurance training. And so I continued for like 43 years before I stopped. And I just, I just, mm. my body just said, you cannot do this anymore. I had no injuries. I never injured my knees. I had no, never had one running injury in my entire career. I was never really a great runner. I did a 250 marathon and, you know, maybe. That's uh, exactly my time too. So there we go. You are matched. Yeah. So I told you there's a lot of similarities in our our past, but I I just became fed up with it. And I said, this is, this is not good for me. And I, you know, I did a lot of, made a lot of other mistakes. Not that it was a mistake, but I I would have, it needs to be more comprehensive. I think some sprinting, Good sprinting mm. workouts would have been better, along with some uh, uh, resistance training. But I'm glad I didn't p- go into resistance training when I was early, because I probably would have overdone it, been overzealous, yeah. and gotten way yeah. too big, and that's not good either. So you got to get this fine balance. It's like the Goldilocks dose, you know. Yeah. yeah. But what 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 is your view on the cortisol? I mean, I just because I mean you're a, just such a magnificent scientist, and I'm sure you've read the literature and you got a perspective that's valuable and can help us understand your perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, I've seen patients with hypercortisism and they get old very quickly. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure it has to have a role. So, yes, I would agree with you. And how do you bring it down? That would be the question. I think it's the whole life experience as you sleep, the stresses and so on. So I kind of, we've started as a, I started as an athlete running. That was going to save the world. Then I realized Mm -hmm. it's not. Then Mm -hmm. we moved on to diet and we realized that that's not the whole solution, as you've indicated. Or you have to refine the diet and you've got to mm-hmm. take supplements and now sleep, et cetera, and lack of stress. It's the human is a complex animal and, mm-hmm. and we're all biologically slightly different. Yeah. So, and I, I, I agree with you that it's, it's a personal experiment. I think what worries me, if you look at the global picture and the reason why you've been criticized is I agree with you, it's health is your responsibility, or it's my responsibility, it's not the state's responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happened. The state is trying to take responsibility for our health and invading our freedoms to do what we can do. And they're making people a lot less healthy, because they're actually not interested in making us healthy. They want to make us part of this big food, big, big, big food, big uh, pharma captured so we captured by them and we become sick and the only way we can get out of that is by take responsibility for your own health as you have done and as i've done and that, that's what we promote well and so, thank you for that for that and, yeah. and i, I want to respond to your i'm excited and delighted actually that you can shift it over to resistance training i'm assuming you're still doing some cardio or just stop that completely yeah i run twice a week no okay yeah. all right so i i i um you may not know my work, but I've been a big promoter of a form of um, resistance training that has in- incorporates blood flow restriction therapy, which are essentially, essentially some somewhat like uh, blood pressure cuffs, but except they're mm-hmm. much thinner, and they apply to your proximal extremities, your arms and your legs, not at the same time. And they cyclically are pumped up with pressure to stop venous flow flow return to the heart yet still allow arterial flow into the muscles so uh it's generically called blood flow restriction therapy but it was actually developed by japanese scientists 50 years ago over 50 years ago <laughs> actually before a little bit after we both started running <laughs> um and so that's a long time ago but anyway the, his implementation is called katsu. It doesn't make any sense from an English perspective because it's a Japanese word and it, and it means additional pressure. And the reason I mention it is I think you might find it profoundly beneficial. Mm-hmm. It's particularly useful for people over 50 and 60 uh, because 
you can get the same resistance training benefits hmm. with 70 to 80% less weight. So yeah. it virtually eliminates the risk of injury. And if I'm sure you're aware, that is one of the primary reasons why people have to stop training because they get injured. Yeah. They wreck up their tens and ligaments and you know, and they and it, and it definitely limits them. So this does, it's magnificent. And I've been using it for about six years now. And that, and I think some of the the, the hacks I've done for my, my diet, it, essentially it increases the type two muscle fibers in the cell big time, because as you get older, the ability, the, your, the, the, the vasculature, and there, there are exceptions. If you're in a competitive uh, endurance athlete, you might have really good blood supply. But most people's vascular supply to the stem cells, the type two fiber stem cells, gets limited. The microcirculation, the uh, to the type to type two satellite stem cells. Uh, so if you've got this going on, it actually increases VEGF locally in the tissue, and it activates those stem cells quite am- amazingly. So that you you get you get these fast twitched fibers that are trained really well. And, and as a testimony to this, I was at a biohacking conference uh, about two months ago now. And I did, and there, my friend of mine was big into arm wrestling. He won one of the, he was like fourth place in the world championships once. And he had a table there and he was teaching people how to do it. So there was a younger uh, anti-aging doctor there too. He's like 30 years younger than me and pretty muscular actually he had probably more muscle mass than I did. And we arm wrestled. And I wound up beating him. <laughs> and, and it's just, and I'm not saying that to brag, just as a testimony to the fact that if you, this type of training is an, an amazingly effective. And, and if you're interested, I'll send you a video that discusses it more. And I can, I can send you one of the katsus to, to use in your workout. Cause I'd like to gift you that for all the amazing work you've done for humanity. Well, I would love to do that because I'll take it to my coach and we'll, We'll experiment with it. Yeah, oh. I think it, it's it's really amazing stuff, and uh, and you can radically. The key thing is, is you're going to prevent injuries. You know, which is what yeah. stops most yeah. people. And in fact, yeah. like the typical 74 year old who hasn't engaged in exercise like you have their whole life, they wouldn't even need to use weights with this. Mm. They would just do a bicep curl with just the the band on. That's all the resistance they would need. So, and many, most other people that age are going to use like two, three, four, five pounds. It's unusual. You're going to use more than five mm-hmm. pounds. So oh, uh, that'll be really interesting. I'd love yeah, to see and that. you'll see it. You'll feel the burn and, and things. Yeah. And it's really, really good. So I'm glad you're open to that. I'll send, I'll send you uh, the information. And if, if, if you, if, and then if you want to do it, just let me know the address to get the, the item sent to Excellent. So send me an email and I'll respond. Yeah. Okay, good, good. All right. Um, I think that c- covers most of the things I wanted to discuss um, with respect to the, you know, I thought, <laughs> I thought it might be a little more fiery exchange, but I don't think you're, you're that's in your bloodstream because you're so kind and, and respectful <laughs> and gentle. <laughs> well, you know, you, yeah. So, what is truth? You know, the I've I've been wrong so many times, and yeah, yeah. And, but fortunately, been right many times too, as 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 you've experienced. So, you 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 learn that what is truth? Well, truth uh, is what hasn't been disproven, and that's it's always yeah. It's that's the model of science. science is not settled. Yeah, that's your hypothesis. You're tr- you're always trying to disprove it. Yeah. It's which yeah, is kind of morphed away. We're not, that's not the type of science is mostly being done today. Yeah. But, well but know. again, I, I, you know, you've had a life experience and if you find something works for you, mm-hmm. I, I, I believe that I trust your judgment. Mm-hmm. How can I say you're absolutely wrong until I've seen other evidence and that's, yeah, that's yeah. how we should be. And we're not like that. We tend to, oh, but you can't be right because the low carb group believes this and you believe that. No, 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 no. We yeah. n- none of us are absolutely true, uh, absolutely certain of anything. Yeah. As spoken like a true, authentic scientist as you are. <laughs> so, you. and just to g- give you some confirmation, you know, because I didn't tell you my, my bio- biological parameters, but when I shifted over from high carb, high fat, low carb to relatively high carb, low fat, 
uh, I mean, my carbs went from 150 grams a day to like four or 500 grams. Mm. I dropped 10 pounds. My body mm. fat decreased 3%. My blood sugar went down. My fasting blood sugar went down 10 points. You know, so it, my body was telling me this is something your body wants to do. <laughs> it was clearly by help, you know, uh, from blood work perspective and biological parameters, it was, I was moving in the right direction. So that that's what intrigued me because, you know, I, I like to, to test these out on these, uh, uh, theories out of myself personally before I start embracing, ex- espousing them to others. Well, I must tell you, one of the first ladies who we converted had told me all of these stories and has had me reading the material on the high carb diet for treatment of diabetes. So I'm not unaware of the. Okay, the good. Items. Yeah. The things I would just be careful of though, is the linoleic acid. And mm-hmm. I'll send you some, when I send you information about the katsu, uh, I'll send you a, uh, an article I wrote in a really good comprehensive video that details it and is specifically how you lower the linoleic acid. But unless you're lowering linoleic acid, high carb yeah. is going to be not a good strategy and you still have to integrate it. Like if the person does, isn't, doesn't have a lot of exercise output, if they're not generating a lot of calories, then they can't go too much above their basal metabolic rate. I mean, you can't yeah. give them four or 500 grams of carbs. It, sure. will, it will be a disaster, an absolute disaster. It has to be appropriate to, to their, phys, their physiology. And many people's going to be two, 300 grams at most. And even yeah, then it's going yeah. to be a problem for some. So you can't yeah, cure yeah. diabetes with, with that universally, unless you individualize and customize it for that person. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I didn't realize we'd be in such, such a line disagreement, but I'm not surprised. You're, you're, you're just, <laughs> you've got such a magnificent life work and history. And I, I'm uh, just honored to be able to dialogue with you. So. Thanks for thanks it's, for all your work. It's, it's been my honor. Thank you so much. A great privilege to okay. speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Makata.